Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Vibe Check. Sam Sanders and his two best friends, writer Syed Jones and journalist and Tony Award-winning producer Zach Stafford, have a podcast where they make sense of everything that's going on in news and culture, from Elon Musk and foreign policy to how to heal from a breakup and SZA's album SOS. They check the vibe of what's going on in the world and how it all feels. It's really funny. It's really genuine. It is exactly like having your favorite group chat come to life. You can join the Weekly Kiki every Wednesday and listen to and follow Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. If you look in the chat, there's a YouTube link, and we should press play at the same time. A YouTube and link, then... press play at the same time. Okay. Oh, yeah, we got to get through the ads probably. I just opened it. Okay, great. Should I play it? Th- Mine's loading. Should I play through the ad? Um, yeah, play through the ad to get to the start of it. Oh, this might be the whole thing. <laughs> you thought the ad was the... <laughs> well, yep. Doesn't that sort of say Just... it all, huh? Okay, so go to the beginning. Go to the beginning. It's one minute long. Okay, ready, press, play. One, two, three. For 40 cents, I got an egg. Now, tell me who you see on... The screen in front of you. A kazoo. I see Gwen Stefani, Kerry Washington, (laughs) Chrissy Turlington. I got a really great hat. Bono. I got half a song. Julianne Moore? Yes. Oh, that guy from Star Wars? A guy. Yeah. Another guy. Jane Lynch. Some bling. Some fries. Gabby Sidibe. Lucy Liu. Some guy. This much (laughs) of a Shirley Temple. Claire Danes. I got a mustache. An apple. Sprinkles. 15 minutes of parking and a ticket. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, yeah. Lipstick. Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem, yeah. And then it flashes on the screen. It says 40 cents buys more than you think. Two pills a day. And here's Bono again. That's what it takes to stay alive. If you're HIV positive, those pills cost about 40 cents a day. 40 cents is what it takes to stay alive if you're HIV positive. The Lazarus effect at Red TM. There we are. This is the Culture Study Podcast, and I'm Anne Helen Peterson. And I'm Amy Schiller. I'm the author of The Price of Humanity, visiting scholar at Dartmouth, and I'm a writer and an academic, and I've been a consultant in philanthropy and fundraising for about 15 years. Okay, so the ostensible theme of this episode is celebrity philanthropy, but we're going to get into like lots of things about celebrity and lots of things about philanthropy. But what sort of tropes did you see or hallmarks of fundraising did you see in this ad? This is from the Red Campaign and it aired originally in April of 2010. Okay, what a good find. Um, I can't believe I (laughs) didn't find this. So uh, two big ones. One is the equivalency of like the value of what 40 cents buys. That gets us straight into almost like a consumer reports, like, where am I going to get the best value for the same sum of money? Yep. And then, of course, you have the glamour of the celebrities themselves, like just the sheer, the star power of it. Like, there's actually very little about AIDS, the cause, the what approach is being taken. Like, there's very little content about the cause. It's just pure, 
pure dazzlement of like, look at all these celebrities, like the Imagine video that came out at the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic. Yes. It's very much the same yes. vibes. And like so many celebrities, it's like Bono's Rolodex, don't you think? He was just like, will you, I don't know, show up in LA or New York for literally one second yeah. and be part of this video uh, for this like... The, the Lazarus effect. I mean, what what is that? What does it mean? Right. Like, does it? Do we need to we know, know, or do we just trust the fact that all these celebrities are raising money for it, so it must be good? Exactly. Like that's that seems to be the presumption here, right? And like, also, I think there's like this weird sort of like, can you believe that all all that it takes is forty cents? Like, you could save the world if you take the change out of your pocket, kind of situation. Right. That's what I call the exchange rate for generosity. Like, oh, you just need to know the minimal dollar amount, the minimal sort of unit of money to do something heroic. You know what I mean? Like the just the minimum yep. increment. So this episode is like the companion to the Q&A that Amy and I did in the Culture Study newsletter back in December. So if you like this episode, definitely go back and read that because we get a lot more wonky and, and detailed in some ways. But today we're going to talk more about a certain corner of philanthropy, which relates to celebrity. And then we'll expand out to talk a little bit more about philanthropy in general. So how did philanthropy become your beat, for lack of a better term? It's a perfect term. Um, <laughs> I always say, like, I kind of took the side door, not into philanthropy per se, but into the intellectualizing of philanthropy. Yep. Yep. Um, I started my career, I did uh, fundraising for a political campaign. I'm from Ohio. Um, so I went back to Cleveland and worked for a Democratic candidate who won the last Democratic governor that Ohio has had, maybe ever. And <laughs> um, hopefully not, probably. And from there, went on to work for a firm in New York. And I, I just as a sidebar, I was hired to work for this consulting firm at 22, which is so young. It was so early. I felt like I was clomping around in my mother's heels like, yes, I am a <laughs> consultant. I know what this is. I very performatively read the Wall Street Journal sitting in the waiting room like this is what grownups do. Wow. Learned so much in the about five years that I was at that firm full time in the thick of Nonprofits like top nonprofits in New York, major medical centers, major universities, major cultural institutions. The first event that I went to was for Alvin Ailey Dance Company, like just jumping right into the deep end of like what philanthropy yeah. does in a city where it's so powerful and it creates so much um, for, for better or worse and learning how mm -hmm. that operates. And maybe the most important thing that happened was talking directly to people for whom philanthropy is a large and conscious part of their life and how like hearing like right. how they talked about why they were giving, how they made giving decisions, what made something a priority. And in that noticing a shift in their language that really intrigued me. Um, it really intrigued me that it was going from a very subjective values-based identity-based sense of, this is my community, I'm giving back to one that was much more detached and analytical and a kind of mm -hmm. extent, rather than philanthropy being a counterpoint to their like identities in the, in the 
economic sphere, it was an extension of them. It was like, I'm going to analyze my giving the same way I analyze my investments um, yeah. and figure out where I can, ha- where my, my, their equivalent of 40 cents would be like, where can my million dollars have the greatest impact? Right. It was very sovereign focused to use this little academic term there of like very much yeah, about yeah. like individual agency power leverage. Like how can I ensure that I personally do the best job, like to have the most success. Um, so that led me to it's like productivity culture applied to philanthropy. Absolutely. Right? It's like, how can like maximize my value, my dollars value. Right. And, and make sure, make sure that I'm not, it's not going into like any bogus philanthropy. Like you don't want to be a chump. Big time. If you're giving away this money. Of course. Yeah. Right. What me, a hedge fund manager, a chump. No, um, <laughs> Nothing's ever gone wrong for me there before. Um, So I just was so intrigued. And it's actually exactly right what you said, that it felt to me like instead of philanthropy, and this may well be a very romantic notion that I have, but instead of philanthropy in its ideal role being this sort of sanctuary or this bulwark against that neoliberal mentality where you could use money for in different ways for different reasons based on different value systems. It just was getting swept up in the same framework. And that made me very sad and very nervous that we were Mm. losing parts of ourselves that were like, I can use money just because I want something to exist. Just so they want people to have something nice and uplifting just because I feel that something is important no, it needed to still fulfill the same framework and metrics as as your more economic analysis. So anyway, yeah. that's a very long way of saying philanthropy became my B because it's how I started my career. And then I realized there was more to the story. And I explored mm-hmm. that through my doctoral work and now through my book. You know, it makes me think of how a lot of us were probably first exposed to philanthropy, especially if you grew up in a smaller town, which was like very local stuff. Mine was like, at school, you would raise money for like the World Wildlife Fund by selling chocolate bars. So that was very alienated from any sort of like, I don't know, action that you could see. But then also a lot of the fundraising that took place in my little town in Idaho was like for the Valley Boys and Girls Club. And because you fundraised for the Valley Boys and Girls Club, then you saw the ramifications of that like in the programs that you were able to attend or tithing at church, which is, you know, part of philanthropy in in an interesting way. Yeah. And you would see the effects of that in different ways in in your daily life. And then to be exposed to those larger things. The first time that I really understood anything about like the scale of philanthropic giving was when some friends of mine in Seattle worked for like different nonprofits where you have to like manage donors and like prepare for the ask that's like a million dollars just unthinkable amounts of money and you have to figure out how to talk to people about okay so we're doing this fundraising campaign what is the appropriate ask for this season mm-hmm. that sort of thing mm-hmm. as i've talked to more people who are in nonprofits and then also reading your book which just put a lot of things in place for me, right? Like gave me language to describe some discomforts that I've had. And I think that a lot of people have had, and especially people who are in the field and still in the field, like are still doing this work and feel very uncomfortable about a lot of the different tropes and tensions and the way that it 
like nonprofits have to appeal to the donor. Like there's something about your Q&A and I, I really encourage people to read that, but especially the book. It spoke to, I think, an discomfort that has been there for some time. Well, that's, first of all, the best thing I could possibly hear that actually like <laughs> I tapped into something real. And yeah, your examples of that early philanthropy it used to be that, um, and, you know, I write about this, uh, that we kind of had a model similar, it, it, there has been a model in operation similar to what happened in ancient Greece, where the ancient nobles were responsible for the civic life of the city, right? Like things that actually yeah. brought people together, banquets, libraries, parades, celebrations, you know, they could be spaces, they could be events, whatever. And, there's definitely limits to that model. It's certainly not like a, a model for justice or restitution. No, <laughs> right. But <laughs> right, it's like it depends on there being rich people, right? Which means that it depends on an equitable society. <laughs> absolutely. And like, you know, in Greece, we're also talking about like slaves being normalized, right? Slavery. So like, right. there's huge, right. huge asterisks and caveats to all of this. But that is your what you are describing is a kind of descendant of that tradition of like that we're this is localized, this is community driven, this is about quality of life, and I'm in relationship with the people who my giving is benefiting. I'm one of the people who's benefiting from that ecosystem, that civic right. ecosystem, right. and the detachment is maybe the most concerning element of all of this, the removal from any interdependent context uh, is, to me, the thing that I'm trying to push back against the strongest. We could just talk about like the philosophy of philanthropy for literally seven hours. So instead, we're going to use some of our listener questions about celebrity philanthropy to get at those larger questions. Great. So this first one is about like the whole reason why celebrities get involved with philanthropy. Let's hear from Stevie. When I was teaching college writing, my students one semester all became interested in writing about sex trafficking because Ashton Kutcher had given congressional testimony about it as a way to promote Thorn, his anti-trafficking software. His perspective, trafficking equals bad, all trafficked people equal victims, trafficking is only about sex, etc., became the dominant mode of thought that my students simply wrote toward rather than researching the nuances of the issue. I'm curious about the historical and cultural impact of celebrity causes on public thought. Why do we lend so much credence to an issue when a famous person, even someone famous for playing doofuses and pulling pranks like Ashton Kutcher, speaks on the subject? There's so much here. So much. I mean, first, I think let's very quickly just address the fact that, well, I personally think that Ashton Kutcher's philanthropy is bad. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah, I think I think Ashton Kutcher is seems to be an ethically compromised person. <laughs> yes. I think we can safely yes. say that um, for many reasons, many reasons, um, <laughs> which, you know, not to get too armchair psychologists about it is one of the reasons why celebrities find a cause to attach themselves to as a means of misdirection and a means yes. of kind of reputation washing or or rebranding, you might even say. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this case, though, there's a couple things that are really interesting. And one is like, when we say, why did we give so much credence to Ashton Kutcher? 
let's just pause at the fact that he gave congressional testimony, meaning he right. had a plat. Congress gave him a platform. This committee gave him a platform. So there was a certain cross pollination there that I think benefits Kutcher much, much more than it does Congress that says, oh, well, if he's giving congressional testimony, he's a more serious guy than just a doofus who plays pranks. So already there's a strategy there. This isn't just him writing an Instagram post about why, why sex trafficking is bad. There was clearly an effort to present him as this serious, thoughtful citizen, expert leader, what have you, that like begins with the fact that he's even like giving congressional testimony. Yeah. The question, though, points to something so relevant and so important about how flattened the issue becomes. Um, I think for celebrities, they're looking for something that is like unequivocally praiseworthy. They are not going to get into something controversial. They are not going to get into something that is confrontational in a way that would risk any of their economic interests. So. It's not going to be about, typically, right? It's not going to be about like labor politics, for example. Like that's not going to be where they go. So what sex trafficking offers is this opportunity to talk about these like perfect victims in a way because they are like not seen, they're not heard most often. There's a narrative that you can spin that says basically like they are there. There's victimhood and they need rescuing and we are here to do it. That is very attractive because if you're looking for something that's again, unambiguously heroic or praiseworthy, that's a great opportunity to exploit in the most cynical way possible like your stature and say like, I, the celebrity, am coming in to rescue these women. That's a great narrative that totally erases any of the complexity that the that the questioner Stevie wrote in about. Yeah. No, and I think <laughs> we have to remember that celebrities are like normal people in some capacity. So the way that Ashton Kutcher, like I haven't done my research here on how he got into philanthropy that addresses sex trafficking, but... He probably like watched a TED talk or like someone started talking to him at a dinner, right? Like someone made this into something that was unignorable to him. Mm. And then we should also point out the very obvious that like in in addition to the reputation washing, philanthropy is a way for rich people to get tax breaks as well. Of like, course. There there's a reason. There's a reason why so many celebrities, so many football players, so many, anyone with any, like a modicum of money, they have a foundation. And it is because it is a structural means of decreasing your tax load. Yeah, absolutely true. And (laughs) in, you know, one of the biggest problems with how we structure that is that the incentives that we have for giving are very like more is more. If you give a larger sum of money away, you can deduct that larger sum of money from your taxes. It's very regressive in that way, instead of kind of flipping the incentives to incentivize and reward smaller dollar giving that may or may not be like a more proportionally higher version of um, percentage of what people can give. So huge problems with that. What you have here is like, he could do stuff on the low, right? He could have a foundation that was just writing checks. The fact that it's part of his public persona that he wanted to like be a face of something 
that's something else. That's really, a, and I think celebrities very often, and Kutcher's a great example of this, what do rich people want? Um, people who have succeeded in one realm of life, they often want the pinnacle of success that is less, that's more elusive to them. So Kutcher has yes. conquered, you know, he's got fame, he's got money, he's got looks. What doesn't he have? He doesn't have renown for being smart. He doesn't have renown for being like a good person or leadership. Like that's the or thing. Or a serious person. A serious right? person. Like exactly. a serious person. So that's, yeah. that's what you're trying to convert is like my stature as a celebrity. I'm trying to convert that into this more elusive form of renown. Absolutely. I mean, that is such a good point in terms of like what someone who, you know, like the question asker was like, this is just like he's a doofy guy. Like, why are people looking at him for this? I would also point out that I think that oftentimes there's a certain point where someone becomes more known for their philanthropy than that whatever became like whatever was the cause of their celebrity. So for college students right now, like, did they know punk to Ashton Kutcher? No. Right. Like to them, there is not necessarily that dissonance. Right. They're just like, Ashton Kutcher is a famous person, right? He's a person whose name I know. And he is testifying before Congress and he has a big set of knowledge. I, I mean, he's been briefed by people who have a lot of knowledge and who have a point of view, right? right? And so he's giving this testimony. And as is often the case, I think that we're not doing the critical thinking of like, okay, why is he doing this? You know, doing all the things that that we're talking about right here. He is just a prominent person doing a, a, a thing that we have legitimized. Yeah. As like, you know, it's like a serious thing. Honestly, Bill Gates is the consummate example of this. Right. right. People think right. of Bill Gates for his philanthropy. He has very successfully. I mean, the tale is yet to be you know, fully told, but he has so far sort of successfully rebranded from monopolist slash like potentially uh-huh. other troubling allegations. Right. Like he absolutely like transformed his um, persona his public persona into like world citizen philanthropist over the last 20, 25 years. 100%. Oh, this is an opportunity for me to tell my most amazing story from the early 90s, which is my mom had this book that had the email accounts of famous people. And on her work account, I emailed Bill Gates and Kurt Loder and said, because this was still when Bill Gates was like, oh, he's just made of money. Yeah. And I said, this is amazing. Early 90s. Why don't you give away more of your money, Bill Gates? Wow. I must have been 11, wow. 12. He wrote me back. How has this not come up between us before? <laughs> he wrote me back or someone on his team wrote back, sure. but as like signed Bill Gates and it like pointed to all of his philanthropic giving. My mom was mortified because it was coming from like her work account as an academic and <laughs> <laughs> but also, I just I love that my like early self, like in the early 90s, did not perceive him as a philanthropist mm-hmm. yet, right? Like that hadn't become the balance of his image. That's so telling. It was just he is so rich. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of my favorite things about the book and about the QA that we did is that you point to the way that like tech philanthropists they think I'm so smart at fixing problems, like really. What malaria needs is a disruptor to come in and do this. And then I can also expand others' understanding of me 
of like, I'm not just a genius at, I don't know, creating an app that makes like cars come to me. I am also a genius at like solving the world's problems. Like all you need is tech brain to solve everything. Right. 100%. And if you use tech brain the right way, you haven't just like made a ton of money, you save the world. Right. Like you're, Which it's all for good. can absolve you. Yeah. Can absolve you of like turning an entire class of people into contractors instead of employees. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm still <laughs> sitting with you, the chaotic good of you emailing Bill Gates from your mom's. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. I just think of yourself yeah. as like an early academic. You have this like work email that's one of like the first work emails that they. <laughs> wow. And I just. Wow. Dinking around, it was like a black and white laptop, like no colors. I just so good. wow, we stand, we have to stand. Eleven year old, incredible. <laughs> Hi everyone. Okay, just a quick note, mid episode here. If you like the show, if it makes you think, if you've been listening to it for the last few weeks and are like, yeah, I want to listen to more of this, we need your help to make this show sustainable. Just go to culturestudypod.substack.com and you'll see how to subscribe. It's $5 a month or $50 a year. And if you're a current newsletter subscriber, you get a great deal. All right, now back to the show. Okay, our next question is about a specific charity and how celebs are rallying around it. This is from Ellen and it's very specific, so we're going to go with it. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and I've been hearing a lot about the Eagles Autism Foundation on game broadcasts, the New Heights podcast, and through the buzz about the Kylie Kelsey signed jacket. A few different questions for you. What are the consequences of portraying autism as a charitable cause for acceptance of neurodivergence or disability rights activism? What are the markers of this kind of capital B, capital C, big charity? I think that legitimizing this kind of conspicuous consumption, like with the jacket or the celebrity events, is one potential marker, but I'm really curious to hear what you think. Thank you. All right. So this is such a good opportunity to talk about how charities objectify people, like actually turn like something that is your identity into an object that you can fund or unfund or that sort of thing. So where does this take you? Okay. Where does this question so take you? So I think that autism goes in very much the same category as sex trafficking in that there's a narrative to be spun about people who may or may not be able to define themselves. And it is exactly as you said, and very much objectifying, flattening. There's a need for perfect victimhood. There's a need for sentimentalizing something rather than actually grappling with some level of mutual responsibility um as a in the sense of like oh this is this is a charitable cause it's a cause for pity i can give pity that doesn't really threaten my power it doesn't really require any sacrifice or like adjustment on my part it just you know you push the right emotional button and like i give the right amount of money and that's and now i've done the right thing so I totally agree that presenting neurodivergence as a charitable cause, and especially kids, I I have to add that like, you know, the won't somebody think of the children card is evergreen, you know, you and, and you can get away with a lot of objectification and self aggrandizement when you're talking about kids and looking like such a, a responsible, thoughtful, person because again these are not necessarily 
people who can define themselves and kind of defy your expectations with their agency, um, or at least right. not in ways that you would, you know, openly allow or display. So that's definitely going on. As far as the conspicuous consumption, you know, I do, I, I, it's totally in the same line as creating like products, cause branded products. Um, in this case, I'm, you know, it, I don't think this is the most egregious example of that, uh, simply because like silent auctions are like just kind of a fact of how fundraising happens. Like there's a, yes. I, I'm, I'm not as troubled by that, but I do absolutely see where it sits on this continuum of sort of flattening, giving into shopping. It's like a more, yeah. I think it's a more sort of familiar, innocuous version of what has sort of become way out of control and way more harmful. I think of it as like, a spur. Yeah. Right. That's like, oh, I was going to give $500 to this anyways, but now I also get something for me. Right. Like I also get someone's cabin in the Berkshires yep. for a weekend. Like when we're talking about um, silent auction type things, but it does strike me as a different in a different realm than 5% of proceeds from this purchase go to saving the Brazilian rainforest, yeah. right? Which is yes, like a, right. a way the, of making yourself feel better. Right. The order, yeah. the order there is important. Like you just said, like, okay, I'm already going to give money to this cause. This is just going to get me to give a little bit more than I had originally thought. Like this is another incentive versus yeah. like the purchases on the front end. Like the point is to buy something that then as an add-on effect also give something back to charity. Like, I, I agree with you that the the sequencing matters. You know, and the part about, like, getting access to star players, like a meet and greet kind of thing, it reminds me of how that structure is part of philanthropy in so many ways, like whether it's at a big gala in New York or in my town, it was the Boys and Girls Club auction, which was, like, the dress-up event of the year and it was how you intermingled with power, whether you were in a small town or a large town. And so I think that like that understanding that like your access to power and privilege is also an opportunity to mm -hmm. like give to those less fortunate. And the whole like narrativizing of that is so, so I already said the word dissonant, but it's so like there's just it's a there's rich a lot text going on there. <laughs> it's a rich, it's a rich text. text. <laughs> I have been obsessed obviously with the Gilded Age. I don't know if you've been watching the Gilded Age on HBO yeah, yeah, this yeah, season, yeah, yeah. but it makes yeah. such a meal out of all of this about the way that philanthropy is, and I believe in a very early episode, um, Christine Bransky's character, Agnes, says like there's two purposes for charity. And one is to actually help the poor, which is noble, admirable. And the other is to allow people into society who might otherwise not qualify for that stature. Yep. Right. And yep. then the whole second season is all about that. And it is all about Bertha Russell building this opera house to assert her wealth, her power, her stature. That is her great victory. Now, yeah. what's the downstream effect of that? And is and whether or not it's worth it is absolutely an open question. But the downstream effect of that is we still have the Met Opera today. You know, there's still there was some there's something interesting about, you know, having built all of this cultural infrastructure that does 
have some level of benefit to the, you know, the populace, whether, again, whether or not it's enough is absolutely an open question, but the motives are always, always, always mixed. And it's fascinating when you see that actually openly narrated instead of, as it usually is, sort of tacitly um, sort of obscured. Well, and I think always about the fact, like, are you the person who gives a donation to, like, I don't know, a university, a hospital, whatever it is, do you want your name on that wing? Or are you the person who is on the wall with the 17 other anonymouses, you know? <laughs> I think that underlines something, right? Yeah. Like, what is, how do you give, how do you think of your giving? Yeah. Is it something that you think of as like, oh, this is my legacy, right? That people should, like, understand that I am a person who gives. Mm. But isn't that also complicated? Like, Very. I don't Very know. complicated. <laughs> I don't know how much time we can like dwell on this, but <laughs> I have, I have a lot of stories and some of which are, I think there's a way to do named things that are really meaningful in proportion. So a story that I've told, um, I actually wrote about it in my dissertation is that there's a brick outside of the stadium where the Cleveland baseball team plays the guardians. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, the guardians. the guardians. Thank you. Um, and it has my name and my brother's name on it. And it's in a plaza full of other bricks with other people's names on them. And my dad sent in $100, which we could do as a family. Like, I'm not saying this is freely accessible for everyone, but he did that because he wanted us to feel like we were a part of building something larger, part of this communal space. Um, and I think there's a way that People may want to, you know, when you name a bench in Central Park or wherever your park is, or you name yeah. a, a brick at the walkway to your high school, there's totally a way to do it that is collective. It's when it becomes like your one person's name over everything that you get into a really distorted reflection of like who matters. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's such a great point. I love any place that has like, all of like the bricks or the names and that sort of thing. Like you always can find people's dogs. You can find inside jokes. You can find a really loving and brief because it's on a brick, a really loving dedication to like a, a member of a family, like all of those things. And that makes me feel like, oh, this was the result of an entire community coming together to raise money for something that would benefit all of us instead of this is one rich person's beneficence yeah. <laughs> that they have decided to bestow upon us. You know, like it's just it's a different structure. Right, 100%. Right? And right. That stuff is so moving. It's It makes you feel like you're you are part of something larger than yourself as opposed to like alienated and you know. So this next question is like a second level. It's about a second level celebrity. There's well, All right. I'll explain more after after we read the sure. question. This is from Lisa. Grant Love, Alexandra Grant's Art Philanthropy Project, seems to be a very unusual approach to charitable donation via branded merchandise promotion. Grant runs it as a for-profit business under her personal LLC. But unlike a business that designates a percentage of their profit from sales to a cause, all the prints and merchandise sold or donated by Grant Love are branded with her registered trademark love symbol and have no other purpose or market. It appears to give Grant maximum reputational benefit while operating in a totally non-transparent manner. At the end of the day, this is Grant pledging to donate the profits or proceeds of her sales, or a percentage of them, 
of items produced by her for-profit LLC with zero minimum donation amounts or reporting requirements. She announces beneficiaries, but rarely if ever announces the amount raised through sales or donated, nor do the organizations selected generally promote the donation amount. She touts this as a model for other artists of modest means, but why would anyone else try this? I am mystified that first Fulcrum Arts and now the Entertainment Industry Foundation have been willing to serve as fiscal sponsors for what appears to be a vanity project, particularly one that has raised so little in the 15 years or so it has operated. This would be trivial if Grant's association since 2019 with actor Keanu Reeves hasn't raised Grant's profile and that of her love philanthropy. She substantially raised item prices and seems to be attempting a move over to license branding of items with the love symbol. Okay, shout out to this person for knowing so much about this particular model of I giving. Was gonna right? say, I think this person's an artist. The skills right? are so <laughs> impressive. This is like David Fahrenheit level. <laughs> this is amazing. Well done, Lisa. Uh, and if you're in the art world, maybe you know Alexander Grant's name. If you're not, maybe your um, familiarity with her is that she has been in relationship with Keanu Reeves for several years. Um, she is an artist in her 50s. And the Grant Love situation, from what Melody and I can tell from the website, is like a bunch of products that have the word love on them written in like loopy cursive that's and there's like an oval around it. Um there is a hoodie. We'll put this in the show notes. There's a hoodie with a bedazzled version of the logo that costs $475. And the website says each Grant Love artwork and product benefits an artist project, arts education organization, or arts nonprofits. It is both a fundraising and friend raising project, building partnerships and support between artists, nonprofits, and community initiatives. Okay, what's your read on this? It's so convoluted of a model. (laughs) I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but I think the problem is the kind of reinventing the wheel nature of this setup where it's like, you know, listen, you could (laughs) just write checks. That's always an option. (laughs) You could just sell stuff and then give it money away. This thing of like, it's a percentage and it goes to something and you share it with the other person. It does feel like a kind of downstream version of, you know, A, I don't want to be a chump. B, I want this to be a business rather than just, you know, right. giving money away. Um, it feels emblematic. I don't think it's, it, it's to, it's not the number one version of this that I've investigated. Cause of course, Lisa takes that, spot with flying colors um (laughs) but it's sus i don't mean like she's a fraud i just mean like it's sus and it's a bummer that someone would feel the need to kind of ricochet the money in so many different ways when you could do it more straightforwardly and so my question is like why does she feel the need to do that? And the answer is like, probably because she, like many other people have absorbed this ethos of like, you just don't, you don't just want to give money away. You want to synergize, you want to make it a business. And then the business makes the charity and then the charity makes the business and it's a brilliant scheme. Right. Well, and also I think that buyers have come to internalize or like it's a motivation to buy something makes you feel somehow like, 
better about buying a $475 sweatshirt if it's also like, quote unquote, charitable, right? Agreed. Like it's completely. a branding exercise. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. And like in my previous podcast, I used to read ads and one of the ads, we always had to read this <laughs> this this line that was about um, how for every item purchased that they would plant a tree, right, in the rainforest. And then there was always a line that I kind of cut that you were supposed to emphasize, that's so many trees, right? Like, and, <laughs> and the trees was meant, <laughs> the trees was meant to really highlight when you buy this item, which is like yeah. many other items on the market, you should feel better. And like, it's not lost on me that this ad was running on a progressive network. Like it's appealing to that part of the brain that says, if I'm going to buy an item, I should also have that item benefiting rainforest recovery. And that I think goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that, oh, we should always be maximizing our dollars spent. So it can't just be, I'm buying an item. It has to be, I'm also giving. And eliminating the friction Yes, um, I feel like this this is a bit like in another realm of stuff that I know you write about where the overwhelm, just the cognitive overwhelm of life makes yeah. it difficult to think, okay, I do my shopping. And then I also use separate cognitive energy to figure out where I'm giving my money. If yeah. you can merge the two, more is the better. That allure of convenience, that allure when we're all so overwhelmed, that's that's the selling point really. Yeah. Well, and I see, you know, there are like databases that rate philanthropies and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people my age, our age, really, I rely on those a little bit. And some of it, I feel like you could write a piece about this, is connected to like Coney 2012, right? I actually have a whole essay about Coney 2012. (laughs) Because I think that there's this idea that like, it's so easy to be duped. I don't want to give to anything that is somehow or like even all of the disaster relief, which I think has become much more prominent and visible in the wake of climate disasters, more climate disasters and also social media. Like there will be things that say like you need here are the reliable charities that you yeah. can give to. Don't yeah. give to the Red Cross. Right. Yeah. Like the problem is that's the fear. wrong. That's the wrong lesson from Coney 2012. <laughs> Coney 2012 is also in that category of needing to flatten a complex situation with yes. multiple actors and multiple motives into a very um, reductive narrative that makes you, the giver, like her central and heroic, very yeah. main character, right? Of like, I'm I am rescuing these children. Never mind the actual political situation on the ground, the status of the various armies of child soldiers, we've found something that we can latch onto and we can sell as a story that really positions the heroism of the giver. So yeah. that's, that's the, it's more the messaging than the fact that some things are scams. Like, yes, some things are scams. Let's go a little deeper. And like, don't just rely on an app, right? Like one of I the know, things. Right. That-, <laughs> that, that was the other problem is like, you're don't, right. The the lesson was supposed to be think critically, not <laughs> like not find the thing that's right. Right. You don't have to think critically about. Yeah. No. And I think there's some lines to be drawn between that fear of like being duped and effective altruism. Right. Big because time. it's like here is an objective way 
of donating. Yeah. An objective way of donating that just happens to align perfectly with my systems of thought and worldview. Right. right. And a, a, what a coincidence perfectly aligns with my power position in society. Gosh, yeah. wow. You're telling me a white man in STEM that I uniquely can save the world. Great. <laughs> Sign me up. For pennies a day, remember? <laughs> For pennies a day. That's right. That's right. I found the most efficient way. Yeah. All you other dum-dums just missed it because you didn't have the yeah, right algorithms. It- it's like all of this millennial shit. It's just like productivity <laughs> culture and like, uh, like. Well, we should not let culture. we should not let not very non millennial Peter Singer off the hook for that one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, no, but like the, I think like the some of the susceptibility is like a, a, a mysterious yeah. slew of of a lot of things that collide around. coming of age in the 2000s agree no that fetishization of efficiency is like right there in the stream i will say this is like me going a little bit into our next subject but like one of the ways that i've grappled with those feelings is by trying to donate to a lot of organizations that are local to me and then it feels like I see this work and it's important. Um, And I'm not just talking about like local as in like hyper local. I'm talking about like, oh, the food bank in my community. Right. Exactly. That sort of thing. Um, Okay. So I want to zoom out because I think that this will allow us to talk a little bit, like wrap up in some way and then also give some practical advice. Because I think one of the things that I was most struck by in the comments to our Q&A was people being like, this all makes sense. And it also kind of makes me feel like shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> that like, they're, they're just trying to give money and like, and help. And all of the ideologies that have consolidated around it are really toxic. But like, what else can you do? So this question comes from Paige. And again, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a way for us to wrap up. What are some ways to engage in philanthropic activities without falling into the trap of giving becoming shopping? And this also brings us full circle to the red campaign, right? Like it does. it's not. Well done. <laughs> so you, you can like very easily say, okay, my philanthropic giving is not going to be uniquely vis-a-vis purchasing an iPhone. But this larger idea, because I think one of the things we discussed in our Q&A was even the idea that like donors choose falls into this rubric in some way. Mm-hmm. Or when someone has a GoFundMe that like the appeal has to be written in a certain way and you have to emphasize these certain things and like that is a way of of us all becoming consumers of other people's trauma and pain yeah so how do we avoid that well first thing i want to say is that there are examples they're in the q a they're in the book that say it doesn't have to just be this neoliberal rot. Like I'm, I'm pointing out a flaw, but I think one of the things that I'm really proudest of having thought about deeply and written about is what are the other models? And yeah. so that's where, for example, the LeBron James comes in. But also I wrote about libraries. I wrote about parks. I wrote about lots of spaces and places that exemplify what philanthropy can do to resist this collapse into a kind of like techno efficiency exclusively only aligned with neoliberalism world. So the precise version of that is starting where you did, Anne, of um, giving locally. And I think giving to a balance of things that address crises. So a food bank Mm -hmm. is totally 
right on because we do not have policy that adequately addresses food security. So it's a bit of a rule of thirds situation, like definitely address urgent needs and urgent crises. Like I, it would be irresponsible to, you know, sweep all that away. I think the problem is when that becomes our exclusive focus. Right. So the second bucket is what are good advocacy organizations, grassroots, national, what have you, that are actually pushing back on the actual policies and structural framework and trying to create more just policies that could be on the local level. And some of that may not be your philanthropy. Some of that may be your activism. Some of that Mm. may be other civic work that you do. Um, But that is sort of another lane of this. But then the third bucket is really important. The third lane is things that actually improve people's quality of life. And that might be a community theater troupe. That might be playground maintenance. That might be the bikes, right? That can be small things, music programs, things that are getting slashed because they don't meet that rubric of efficiency, but are really Mm -hmm. important that we really need to have exist for our lives to feel like they have meaning for us to feel like we have connection. So there are going to be things that are local that fulfill that where you can have relationships with people and actually see over time how those programs benefit people. It's not a, it's not a silver bullet kind of thing. I gave $1 and I got like five music lessons and that's what it was. Like you're going to see the subjectivity of that person emerge in a different way. The last thing I would say is to address more civically giving that's not shopping is giving unrestricted money. So if you are in a position (laughs) to give money that like you could designate, or if you're offered that option, don't do it. Don't line item restrict things. I will say one small anecdote about this, which is um, a fundraiser friend of mine had a donor who uh, said, well, I want to help the women in this shelter, but I don't want to just pay for the elevator. And I looked at her and I like exclaimed, well, I couldn't even pause before I said this. And I was like, the elevator is the women. <laughs> like, they're the same they, the women need the elevator. Everyone needs the elevator. Like that, you have to let go of that part of yourself that's like, well, I only want to give to like yep. the nice thing, the people, the stuff that makes me feel good. We need infrastructure. You need operating costs. You need, you know, you just need unrestricted operating funds. So like l- release the part of yourself that doesn't like that because giving unrestricted, giving without strings, that's what makes it not shopping, not buying a tangible yep. outcome. Right. One thing that you brought up that I think is so important for us to remember is sometimes giving money is actually (laughs) like it's always kind of going to be shopping. Right. Because Mm -hmm. money is what we sometimes use when we don't want to make actual sacrifices. I mean, this depends on how much money you have. Right. But like, sure. But like so sometimes you're like, oh, I could never go volunteer at the food bank. That's way too much of my time. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm going to donate to them. And I yeah. like sometimes I do this calculus as well. It's like, wh- what's worth more? Should I give them money? Should I go volunteer? I mean, the, the best answer would be both. You do both. Right. And by the because way, just to be clear. Labor like, is money, too. Yeah, it is. It's OK if that's where you put things like uh, it's not that the problem is not that you're using money. The problem is that yeah. you're using money the same way you use money when you're shopping, which is like, yeah, I want to yeah, know yeah. what I'm getting. Yeah. 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 And like, also <laughs> like I need to have like a receipt 
You know, like that there has to be some sort of like, mm-hmm. here's all of the work that your money did every like very clear, like right. results when it could be. And I hope we can all try to internalize this. Like, it should be the elevator, it should be gifts, it should yeah. be deodorant, like right. all of those things. It's aggregate that I, it's like aggregate yeah. is just another way of saying communal. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So that's our advice. Amy, if people want to find more of you on the internet, where should they find you? Um, you can follow me at Amy the Shill, a C-H-I-L-L, on Twitter and Instagram. My website is amybestshiller.com. And you can find my book, The Price of Humanity, in bookstores everywhere, on Bookshop, anywhere you buy books. And feel free to get in touch with me via any of those means. Also, if you need any recommendations for Cleveland, Amy is the person to talk to. Up. It's true. Just to be, like I was in Cleveland for Christmas and Amy was like, go here, go this part of the art museum. I will say I, both of us agree that you should absolutely go visit the Cleveland Museum of Art because it is an example of the type of philanthropy that we're talking about here in yes. terms of like an incredible, incredible free collection. Um, just ma- magnificent in so many different ways. And um, the best thing is that it's free to enter. It's totally free yeah. to enter. And I, the motto that they have is for the benefit of all the people forever. And if you can adapt that motto of expansiveness in generosity, definitely take your take your cue from the Cleveland Museum of Art, the place where I go to believe that humans don't have to fuck everything up. <laughs> See, I just I had to set you up. You did that quote. And I really appreciate (laughs) that you did that. If you like today's episode and you're in the D.C. area, go see Amy on her book tour. She'll be at Politics and Prose at the Wharf this Friday, February 2nd. The event is free, so don't miss it. And if you're a paid subscriber, stick around for a two-question edition of Ask Anne Anything featuring special guest, your favorite producer, Melody Rowell. Thank you so much for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have so many great episodes in the works, and I promise you don't want to miss any of them. If you want to suggest a topic, ask a question about the culture that surrounds you, or submit a question for our subscriber-only advice time segment, check the show notes for a link to our Substack. If you want to support the show and get bonus content, head to culturestudypod.substack.com. It's five bucks a month or $50 a year, and you'll get ad-free episodes, an exclusive advice time segment, weekly discussion threads for each episode, and a link to a special Google form so that your questions go to the front of the line. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Anne Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, Melody at Melodious47, and the show at Culture Study Pod. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you.